Welcome back to Word for Wordcast, short stories performed with great theatricality. Word for Word has been performing short stories on stage for over 25 years, and we're happy to continue sharing stories on the air in this time when we can't meet in person. Creating and maintaining community is more important than ever now, and we want to stay connected to you, our community. Today, our second offering is The 14 Mission, a story of community by San Francisco writer Anita Cabrera, a tale of two unlikely friends who connect in recovery. On Christmas Day, Ron takes the 14 Mission bus to visit his best friend. As he rides from his room in the Tenderloin toward Mission and 16th Streets, he looks back on his past life as a drunken outcast, so troubled he was once thrown off this same bus he's riding now, and considers what he owes his friend. If you like this story, please donate at zspace.org pod. And now, Anita Cabrera's The 14 Mission. Bus driver didn't recognize Gypsy now that he didn't smell like shit. Gypsy nodded to the man in the Muni uniform and flashed his fast pass. Merry Christmas, brother. If you hadn't listened closely, you would have thought he'd merely grunted, his vocal cords shrunken and scarred from sleeping outdoors and smoking anything he could score. Driver was a regular who had kicked Gypsy off the bus before. Most drivers had. Sometimes Gypsy got kicked off before getting on because he had soiled himself. People around him would retch and turn their heads before he even made his way up the bus steps. Uh, the 14 mission was the worst of the worst, opined Pelican Pete, after hearing about Gypsy's escapades. Getting kicked off the number 14 is a goddamn distinction. The guys at the detox kitted. <laughs> <laughs> Morning. The driver didn't bother to take his eyes from the road. Ron didn't mind. The driver would not recognize Gypsy in the man Ron had cleaned up into. How could he? Ron no longer stumbled along beneath the armor of a black trench coat, the telltale worn paperback sticking out of the pocket, something scavenged from the donation piles dumped beside community thrift or the bin of free books outside a bookstore on Valencia Street. Ron stood tall now, clutching a package with ribbons around it. A man with a mission. Only the faintest vestiges of Gypsy remained. The 14 mission was all but empty. It was Christmas morning and a few people were out on the street. A worker in an apron, smoking a cigarette. Hose down the sidewalk outside an all-you-can-eat cafeteria. 
a group of men and women in dress clothes cradled copies of the Watchtower. The Watchtower. Watchtower. And talked among themselves, scanning the sidewalk for passersby. The mission buses had more tags scrawled in paint marker and scratched into the windows, more gouged up seats and trash than any other line. The undercover cops and cameras didn't make a difference. What marked the 14 mission was the communal staring ahead into nothing, the dazed, resigned expressions of the people who rode it. Ron didn't hang around Mission in 16th anymore. Not since the city patrol team picked him up there and dropped him at the last detox. All right, Gypsy. Don't let the limousine service go to your head. The driver had choked. Nothing different about that time eight months ago. Except another drunk. Melvin. Gypsy knew the counselors and junkies and elkies who circulated through the detox centers and shelters. Though he didn't let on that he recognized anyone, it was safer being alone. When the people in the meeting said, keep the plug in the jug, keep the plug, keep the plug, the plug, the jug, plug in the jug, they meant keep the bottle corked from the outside. Gypsy kept the plug in the jug all right, only he bottled things up from the inside where it was dark and wet, blocking out anything that could get at him. Air, people, light. When the plug did get pulled, when Gypsy woke up shaking, strapped down, bugs relay racing up and down his skin, the light was too much, life glaring him in the face. Melvin helped Gypsy's eyes adjust. You got a sponsor, Gypsy? That first day, Melvin sat down in a metal folding chair next to Ron in the back of the meeting, near the coffee. Ron wasn't expecting anyone to talk to him. He shook so bad that Melvin took it as a no. When Melvin put a hand on his shoulder... Ron jerked back. He wasn't used to being touched. Well, my goddamn sponsor says, I gotta get a new guy. So, you're it. It's our lucky day. Melvin looked him in the eyes, forcing Ron to look back. By the way, you got another name? The one your mama gave you? From then on, Melvin introduced him around as Ron. Ron. Melvin had six months clean. A fucking paragon of sobriety, thought Ron. Or else Melvin was lying. Melvin went to the noon meeting every day. And from what Ron gathered, even more meetings than that. The fellows in Ron's detox sometimes ragged on Melvin. He thinks he's all that and more, just because he's got a little time. Trying to tell everyone else how to do it. <laughs> Check out the hair. Who dad and made him Elvis? <laughs> <laughs> we have no leaders, quoted Skinhead Ed from the AA Big Book. The 12-step Bible sober drunk studied underlined and shoved at newcomers. After Ron left the detox, Melvin showed up in the morning at Ron's place in the Tenderloin and knocked on the door so loudly, someone from down the hall yelled, shut up! Melvin insisted Ron go with him to a morning meeting. I told you, I'll meet you tonight at the 7 p.m. Ron groaned before pulling the pillow over his head. Melvin went to the window and yanked down the blanket hanging there, even though the room looked onto a brick wall. 
Rond preferred to stay in bed until late afternoon so he could ease into the muted light of dusk. He still felt the sting of shame, remembering how people would cross the street to steer clear of him, or worse, yell out, Hey, Gypshit! Hey, Gypshit! Gypshit! If you're gonna hide in a dump, you might as well hide in one with sober drunks and coffee, Melvin said. He dragged Ron to the morning meeting, where he instructed him to help set up chairs. Melvin kept introducing him around as Ron, and sometimes between the reading of how it works at the beginning of that meeting... Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And the unified chant of keep coming back. Keep coming coming back. back. At the end of another, the specter of Gypsy grew dimmer. Ron got rid of the trench coat, but still walked around with a book in his pocket. His most recent find, William James, the variety of religious experience. Some transformations are so gradual, you don't notice them. Melvin bought Ron the first toothbrush and toothpaste he'd had in years. You got rid of the stink on one end. Let's work on the other, Melvin began. Wash your face, cut your nails, brush your teeth. Directives Melvin gave Ron while Ron waited to learn how to stay sober. Ron tried to inject an opinion. But Melvin cut him off. I don't want to know what you think. Look where your best thinking got you. Just do what I tell you. Melvin told Ron to take the cotton out of his ears and put it in his mouth to listen for the similarities, to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Most of the time, Melvin went with him. It was Melvin's turn to share his story in front of the group. In his chair, Ron stared down at his hands and listened. As Melvin recounted how at a little more than six months sober, on a Saturday morning, he had stopped by the house where he'd lived with his ex to pick up some tools. That's what I told myself, at least. But I was still carrying a grudge and a flame. I didn't exactly have closure with my old lady. She called the cops on me the last time I saw her after I tied one on and got physical. Melvin took a sip from a styrofoam cup before continuing. I am not proud of what I was, what I did when I drank. Melvin had pulled into the driveway just as his old boss, the one who fired him for coming to work shit-faced too many times, walked out the front door of the home Melvin still considered his. Melvin drove away without bothering to look for his tools, went straight to the Lucky Penny, his old watering hole. He was walking through the barroom door when his cell buzzed. It was Ron. Melvin didn't want to answer it, but something made him. Ron wanted to know, was he still going to come and get him for a noon meeting? Melvin paused, looked up at the ceiling. They say the time comes when the only thing between you and the next drink is a higher power. He put the cup down before continuing. Well, they forgot about goddamn Ron. Melvin jerked his chin toward the middle row of chairs. How was I going to drink? when this clown was expecting me to get him to a meeting. Why make a woman, why make anyone or anything more important than my sobriety? Or Ron's? Ron's expression did not change. 
He could have been listening to Melvin giving a weather report. But he felt warm inside, hearing Melvin talk about him like that. Ron exhaled and let his shoulders drop, basked in the unfamiliar sensation of being part of something like he belonged. Pelican Pete's voice broke his reverie. The ex-con was sharing from the floor. I was the worst of the worst, Pelican Pete growled, before firing off the places he'd done time. Sing Sing, San Quentin, Pelican Bay. I never had no feelings before. Didn't need them. I had my drink. <laughs> the others laughed. <laughs> Including Ron. Because they understood. Melvin and Ron took newcomers to coffee after meetings. <laughs> Good share. Or went out for fellowship at the Chinese buffet with group afterwards. They talked about books. Melvin turned Ron on to Lawrence Block, whose detective Matthew Scudder was a drunk getting sober. Ron told Melvin about Walt Whitman and Cormac McCarthy. Ron was surprised when Melvin told him he had once dreamt of being an artist before he got sidetracked by junk. Wow, no kidding. Ron confessed that he wanted to try the clogging dance classes at the community center. <laughs> okay. They discovered they were both sons of alcoholic fathers. Alcoholic fathers? Who had a knack for beating the crap out of their offspring. You know, it's time to start on your fourth step. Melvin and Ron read the big book together, and Melvin emphasized to Ron that had to be thorough, to list all his resentments. Ron understood why people hemmed and hawed about this part. How was he ever going to write down every person he had had bad blood with, every so-called friend that double-crossed him, every woman who... And worse, his fears? <laughs> it wasn't going to be easy. Ron could still feel his father's calloused fingers on his scalp from when he would tossle his hair as if he were being playful before dragging him out to the garage for a pummeling. If I ever see that bastard again, the only thing I'm going to say to him is, fuck you, right before I kill him, Ron swore. You going to let him win? Huh? You know the saying. Having a resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. Ron knew Melvin was trying to help. Even so, he didn't buy everything the people in AA said. A lot of it was good. Most of it made sense, like the one day at a time thing. But Ron's father, that son of a bitch, was his business, his hatred to harbor. And that part where you have to make amends? How could a man who beat his child and woman, who pissed away grocery and rent money on booze, deserve an apology? Ron was willing to do a lot, but that was too much. Just take it easy, partner, Melvin reasoned. You don't have to rebuild Rome in a day. Rebuild hell more like it. Sometimes, making an amends means just accepting a bastard for the bastard he is and walking away in peace. Melvin sketched a cowboy with a thick, droopy mustache on the napkin in front of him at the diner. My daddy was a coward and a son of a bitch. He couldn't have done different because he wasn't man enough. He was damaged goods himself. When I realized that, and thought about all he missed out on, that he had to live with his sorry self every day of his life, 
Melvin shook his head. I pitied him. Had no idea what I would say to him if I ever did find him. Lucky for me, it took a while. When I finally went and knocked on his door and told him who I was, I told him I was sorry that I had felt nothing but anger towards him ever since I could remember. I told him I wasn't going to hold on to that anger anymore. You know what that sad excuse of a man did? Melvin stopped scribbling and looked square into Ron's eyes. He said, okay, and shut the door in my face. But I closed the door too. That night, I slept better than I had in a long time. Didn't feel hatred eating me up from the inside anymore. I thank the chief upstairs I don't ever have to lay eyes on that prick again. Melvin went back to shading the cowboy's profile. The pencil stub clutched in his fingers. They sat in silence, Ron watching the cowboy grow more distinct as Melvin worked, wondering how he had learned to draw like that. Ron couldn't help himself. Melvin, I'm glad for you. It's a good thing what you did, but this is different. My old man near about killed me on more than one occasion. That fool even stole a bike my mama bought me one Christmas, sold it on Christmas Eve for God knows what kind of fix. Yeah? Was your daddy the worst of the worst? Melvin mimicked Pelican Pete, delivering their buddy's tagline in the same slightly New Yorican accent. The smallest threat of a smile rearranged the grooves on Ron's face. Melvin wasn't kidding now. Just work on being willing, Ron. You don't have to do anything right now. Ron could do that. It was sort of like that fake it till you make it strategy Melvin had told him about. In the meantime, they were busy. At Melvin's insistence, Ron had taken on service commitments at meetings. Greeter, coffee maker, setup person, and wasn't lonely or bored hardly ever. And when Melvin started seeing Sherry from the Thursday night meeting, Sherry, Ron was more happy for him than jealous. Even at the dance when Melvin and Sherry didn't show, Ron just felt a little panicky at first. But he ran into people who he knew from the meeting. Hey, Ron and danced with a few women. Hey. Before leaving with one known for playing guy. Ron didn't care. Company was company. Some women just wanted nothing more than a little attention. We're up for a good time. Besides, maybe he'd get lucky and someone would like him for him. <laughs> Watch out for those slippery women, Melvin warned him. They're the best kind, Ron bantered. <laughs> The thing is, messing around with other people's feelings is the best way to get your own hurt. I'm not going to tell you to wait until you can handle a relationship. If it's just sex and they're willing, well, you're a grown man. I just see too many brothers getting messed up over a woman and start drinking again. That goes for you too, Ron was thinking. He'd seen Sherry bum a light from a new guy and bend too close. Laughing and talking with him after a meeting one night when Melvin wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> a few days after that, Sherry wore dark sunglasses all through the noon meeting and 
avoided people. Ron almost mentioned it to Melvin, but thought better of it. None of his business. The next Friday, Melvin walked into the meeting right past Ron and Pelican Pete. Who was showing off photos of his new great-grandchild on his phone. Melvin passed by without even slapping Ron on the back or punching his shoulder. Ron grabbed Melvin's sleeve. Hey, partner, what's your hurry? Melvin turned and faltered. He reeked and his eyes were bloodshot. His hair fell in a clump across his forehead like a collapsed question mark. Mel, what happened? A stupid question. But Ron had never seen Melvin like this. <clears throat> Melvin swayed unsteadily without answering. Ron's hope that people could change started to slide down the hole. Seeing Mel like this was a punch to the gut. Ron wondered if he'd been duped. Here was Melvin, the one who was always telling Ron, go to meetings and don't drink in between. Go to meetings and don't drink in between. And he couldn't even do it himself. It was Ron's turn to return the favor. Remember, Ron told Melvin, it's one day at a time. Don't let the life that sobriety gives you take away your sober life. Pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. There but for the grace of God, all the sayings Ron hated hearing the first few months came flying out of his mouth as if he'd had 12-step Tourette's, as if he were trying to convince himself as much as Melvin. But no matter how much Ron hounded Melvin, it didn't stick. Melvin hung his head when he explained to Ron. The Royal Gate and tall boys kept calling to him. He couldn't help it. Ron secretly blamed Sherry for Melvin's relapse. He saw how she took up with a newcomer half her age days after breaking up with Melvin. But she did wait until they had broken up. Sherry told anyone who would listen. What a piece of work, huh? Ron nudged Melvin when Sherry walked by in the meeting. Maybe he could make Melvin see that he wasn't missing anything. You know, when others speculated about uh, Sherry's black eye right after the breakup, Ron didn't weigh in. You weren't supposed to take other people's inventories anyway. On Christmas Eve, Ron got the call from one of Pelican Pete's guys who worked at the Salvation Army, or Sally's as they called it. The EMTs had picked up Melvin and taken him to the same detox Ron had last landed in. A counselor found space for Melvin in the longer-term program at Sally's. Ron would stop by Sally's and visit Melvin before heading to the meeting and the holiday potluck. Some Christmas, he thought, turning the package around and around in his hand. Melvin would be through the DTs by now, or they wouldn't have moved him. This was the first present Ron had bought someone in his adult life. He'd gone to the art store on Market and blown a chunk of his SSI money on a set of colored pencils from Holland and two drawing pads. The kind real artists use, with thick paper. He'd even tied a ribbon around it all. Hell, if baby Jesus was a miracle, then maybe old Ron was a miracle too. He pictured Melvin's face when he saw the package. <laughs> Damn clown. Why'd you go and do this? That was Melvin's way. Ron walked past the metal detectors and up to the front desk. I'm here for Melvin. He come over last night. 
The attendant's face told him. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. We found him this morning. The guy looked at Ron, as if begging forgiveness. We don't even know how he got the stuff. Ron held up his hand, cut off the rest of the story. None of it matters. He stood for a moment, exhaling away any feelings that might rise up. He turned and walked back towards the door. The attendant called after him. Hey, do you know any family to contact? Ron walked without thinking about where he was going. What difference would it make? It hadn't worked for Melvin, so how could it work for him? If everyone ended up in the same place, why bother with the detour? Ron couldn't decide whether to kill Sherry or get loaded. Both would feel good. He boarded the 14 mission and headed towards 16th to see who was out. Christmas or no Christmas, there'd be someone to score from. They might not recognize him anymore, but Ron knew who they were. Melvin's present, still in his hand. Ron sat down, wearing the same blank stare as the other passengers, looking ahead at nothing. Ron had survived this part of the city for so many years by tuning it out. He didn't look at the closed storefronts, the shuttered check-cashing places and pawnbrokers, the corner stores selling cheap booze and lottery tickets. Mama? Across the aisle, a little fellow maybe five or six years old was slumped against his mother. Her eyes were closed, her head leaning against the window. The boy wore a sweatshirt with the drawing of a bucking bronco on it. Mama. He was staring at the package in Ron's hands. The mother glanced at the child. And then at Ron. Before putting her arm around the boy, she turned back to the window. The proselytizers with their watchtowers were gone. Melvin wasn't coming back no matter what. Ron was still holding Melvin's gift when he got up from his seat. The next stop was close to the lucky penny in the noon meeting. Ron pulled the cord to signal the stop. He stood and towered over the little boy next to his mother. The woman pulled the child closer. Staring Ron down. Excuse me, ma'am. I'd be mighty obliged. You, you see, my friend, uh, he's an artist, but he has so many. I mean, well, if you would allow me... Uh, Maybe this young man could make better use of these. Ron held out the sleek metal tin of colored pencils. Colored pencils? And thick sketch pads. The ribbon limp and loosened a bit. The child looked up at his mother. Who tightened her mouth. And eyed Ron again. Before relenting and nodding, okay. The boy snuck his hand out tentatively. Then quickly. As if stealing a bone from a hungry dog accepted the offering. Ron understood the hesitancy, the risks involved. Gifts can be taken back or lost. Spaces get filled and then left emptier than before. Ron stepped down from the bus. Any other afternoon, there'd be the usual assortment lurking on that corner, a busy merchandising spot for small-time entrepreneurs. But to his surprise... No one else was out at that moment. 
as if someone had shined a light and sent the cockroaches scurrying. Empty. Ron's boots were louder, heavier upon the pavement, sounding out an echo down the sidewalk. The lucky penny and the meeting were both the same distance away. If he kept walking, he would make good time. Thanks for joining us for our second offering of Word for Wordcast, Anita Cabrera's tale of friendship and the struggles of being human. The 14 Mission was directed by Stephanie Hunt and features Bob Ernst as Ron, Rosie Hallett as Sherry and Ensemble, Dorian Lockett as the bus driver and Ensemble, Amy Prosser as Mother and Ensemble, Alexander Panulo as Skinhead Ed and Ensemble, Jomar Tagatak as Melvin, and Michael Torres as Pelican Pete. The sound design is by Drew Yaris. Our production manager is Colin McNally. Audio engineer is Joe Moore. Line producer is Chris Swan. Production assistant, Carly Dream Calbreth. And our director of marketing and distribution is Andrew Burmester. I'm your host, Joanne Winter. Please stay tuned for a conversation between writer Anita Cabrera and Word for Word Corps company members Vanessa Flores and Stephanie Hunt. If you liked the podcast, please consider making a donation at zspace.org pod, where you can also find more information about future episodes of Word for Wordcast. And now a conversation with author Anita Cabrera, director Stephanie Hunt, and Word for Word Corps member Vanessa Flores. Hi, Anita. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. So let's begin with a little bit of backstory for those who may not know. In the fall of 2019, Word for Word conducted their first ever short story festival. And as a reader and writer of short stories myself, I was really excited to be involved in the selection process for the festival. We received over 100 submissions, so many of those submissions, in fact, from young writers that we just had to create a short story teen festival, uh, completely magical and so much fun, by the way. But the point is, we read each submission, discussed them thoroughly, sometimes heatedly, and in the end, we chose six short stories by California writers to be performed in the classic word-for-word style. And The 14 Mission was one of those stories that went before a live audience that fall. And before I ask you both a few questions, Anita and Stephanie, I think you should know that I became a bit of an Anita Cabrera scholar, if you will. I read a few of Anita's other short stories and poems and had the chance to reflect on pieces from her body of work. And I find that the common thread in Anita's work for me is that I keep finding myself in places and with characters that I think, to be frank here, 
I might otherwise not spend much time with. In some cases, I think most of us might act or react to some of these characters, much like the mother with her child does on the bus at the end of the story. Or in a more privileged framework, choose not to see or simply avoid some of these characters. But I feel like Anita's work non-judgmentally and empathetically confronts the struggles of the homeless, the working class, the impulses of recovering addicts at home with their families, absolutely real and difficult challenges that everyday people are facing every day. And most of us have the privilege of not having to really think about or acknowledge the suffering that exists on our streets and in our cities. Even our protagonist and addict himself feels he's got to ignore it to survive. This is Ron, and it's one of my favorite lines in the story. Ron had survived this part of the city so many years by tuning it out. He didn't look out at the closed storefronts, the shuttered check-cashing places and pawnbrokers, the corner stores selling cheap booze and lottery tickets. And yet, because Anita's work feels grounded in reality, because her characters truly feel human and vulnerable and exposed, because they are candid and gritty and unapologetically so, I am there as a reader. I stay with them. I care for them. I want them to do well for themselves. And in Ron's case in particular, choose what's best for him. So this story places us not only in various church basements and 12-step social events, but also on the 14-mission bus line, for one, and on the streets of the Mission District in San Francisco. So Anita, I'm curious what you think it is about these characters and their specific challenges that drew you to write this story and what it's like to move toward content that so many of us are able to and choose to turn away from. So that's easy in one aspect because um, the people and the places in this story are people and places that I knew intimately. These are places that I went to, people that I knew and I interacted with on my daily route for a long time, well, in my 20s, late 20s and early 30s. And um, I was in residency at Ragdale outside of Chicago. It was the first time I was at a residency. And I remember I sat down and I said, okay, I'm going to write a story from beginning to end. And the fragments of this story were in, I mean, I kind of, in a very skeletal form, the incident on the bus, someone recounted to me. Maybe I might've made it up because I went back to the person who I thought recounted it to me and he said, and it wasn't me, never happened. But, um, so I sat down and, um, I wouldn't let myself get up. And when you're in a residency, the beauty of it is that you don't have to abide by like a circadian rhythm. You don't have to, I don't, you know, I could stay up all night and then sleep for a day and then go for a bike ride and sit at a computer or, you know, at a table for, 15 hours straight and then eat or not eat. I kind of like it. I hate to say it. It gets me in a different state of mind. And so as quickly and as I could, I wanted to get that whole story out from start to finish. And it was, I I hate when people, I just listened to Joyce Carol Oates say, writing should be fun. For me, it's never, it feels more like I'm giving birth and I've given birth a few times. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But it was done, you know, and I was like, okay, I got the story written. And then um, at the end of the residency period, the writers share, you know, very informally, we read if we want to something we've written. And so I shared this story and a young novelist, uh, said to me at the end, well, that's about the two men. 
and I thought, well, was, I, I, I was focusing more on the, what happened in the store, you know, that, and I thought about it and I went back and it's almost as if I have that same sort of resistance to talking about emotion in my own life that I think Ron and Melvin have, you know, like they express love and affection in very different ways. You know, they're not effusive. We're not going to sit down and talk about our feelings. And so I went back and I, I really put myself in them, you know, and the people that I drew from them. Like I remember, you know, things that they did or how they spoke with me or to me, or do you know, things I might've said if I felt, you know, like I wanted to reach out to them while they were, you know, while we passed each other on the street. You know, I think both men have that kind of bravado. They have like, they were both abused. They were both abandoned and to survive in the world as men like that, they walk around acting as if they're fine. I think, you know, like their loneliness is a kind of harbor. It's a safe place for them to be. And so my task as a writer was to show them slowly, you know, reaching beyond that those limits of, you know, to, to how to tentatively reach towards human connection. So Stephanie, what drew you as a director to this story initially and made you want to be the person who helped it come to life? I'd say the very first sentence grabbed me. And as I read through the first paragraph, the truthfulness and the humor and the lack of judgment of the character's behavior. And uh, it just felt so true to me. And I recognized something about them and about the place and the time that just felt very, very honest. And what else attracted me is that the structure of the story is so elegant, um, which makes it inherently dramatic the relationship of the two men and how it, how it develops and, and how that happens. And, and also there is a, a sort of subtext in the story. Uh, and that's something that's very useful when we choose stories for word for word. There's much more that you can infer than is actually on the page. Like a Raymond Carver story or some of those great writers. There's a lot more going yeah, on. Yeah, actually, so uh, Anita, I don't know if you know this, but during the staged reading version, Stephanie gave the actors some research notes, and she mentioned that your work is reminiscent of Raymond Carver, like she just mentioned, and Lu Lucia Berlin and John Steinbeck, writers that travel in the same kinds of worlds or landscapes. Um, so I think we're curious, both Stephanie and I, who are some of your influences? So um, I would never think of someone as an influence, but having thought about it or thinking about it now, I realize when you say Raymond Carver, that when I first, I didn't hear about Raymond Carver until I was in my 30s, I think, early 30s. And um, well, I uh, heard a, the story was told, you know, it wasn't read, someone recounted the story. And I thought, oh, my God, I just thought that was such a beautiful story. And later on, I realized that the person who recounted the story was visually impaired himself. And on one of my first dates with my husband, I made him sit there while I read him the story because it was so beautiful to me. Like, it, is, it stays with me. It stays with me to this day. I can't walk through the world without being reminded of elements of that story. Um, and then... When I first moved out here, I lived in Berkeley, um, really close to 
Black Oak books, you know, in um, North that little area. And um, I started reading Charles Bukowski. They carried a lot of Black Sparrow Press books. So I read Bukowski and then Bukowski talked about John Font and um, I read all of John Font. So there was a, there, there, a real sort of, I guess those kind of characters inhabit those people. It's people who are dealing with addiction, with um, feeling outside. So yeah, I definitely was influenced by Raymond Carver. I, the first time I heard the story Cathedral by him, that was the first Raymond Carver work I heard or learned of. And it was told to me by um, a person whom I later realized I didn't know at the time because we were in a large, like a room sitting far apart that he himself was visually impaired. But that story Cathedral um, just is so powerful and talk about subtext, no? So I liked, I loved it so much that I, uh, I made my husband listen to me read it to him on one of our first <laughs> dates. So that was a risk. It could, could have been the end. I might not have kids that's right now. You know. but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know. But that's how you know. Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, there are certain, I, you might love a writer, but there are certain, you know, singular short stories that stick to me, that influence the way I see the world and I react to. Same thing with Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. I can't look at a young person in the world. You know, there's some days I just walk by and I think you, you are my children. Maybe I'm misread. I read it very differently now as a woman who has grown children and grandchildren than I did as a young woman who was single, right? So we all know that there are certain bus lines in, in cities that have reputations. Some even come with their own legends. So there's a notorious San Francisco one that has the chicken story attached to it. Uh, but Anita, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your own connection to the 14 Mission bus line and why you chose it to hold the beginning and the end of this story. I feel bad for anyone who's listening if they haven't heard about the chicken story, though. I'm thinking it's the one about the 30 Stockton where a woman got on with a live chicken and the bus driver told her <laughs> she couldn't get on with a live chicken, so she wrung its neck and then got on the bus. That's the one. But I used to ride uh, the 14 Mission regularly in the late 80s. I lived in the East Bay, and I would take the casual carpool to my job at a legal newspaper in San Francisco. And the casual carpool dropped people off at the Transbay Terminal, which is probably no longer there. And I would take the 14 Mission down to South Van Ness and Mission Street. And... One morning, I was dressed in office attire, you know, pretty uh, conservative office attire. And I was sitting next to the window because I always like to look out the window. And the bus was going away from downtown. So it wasn't full. There were plenty of seats, but there were also people. And a strange man just got on top of me. And I was startled. And I got up from under him. And I like extra, I just remember kind of extricating myself and climbing out from under him. And I looked around and nobody said anything. No one, no one came, no one said anything. They pretended not to notice. And when I told the bus driver, I ran to the front, he just kind of shrugged. And, you know, I saw a lot of things on the 14 mission that um, I can't forget, but that I do would like to forget, you know, that are hard to, um, not, not all the time. I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a, it's a bus, it's a bus and it connects, you know, the mission with downtown, but that that's also that, that corridor, you know, 16th street is a, uh, 
you know, it's a busy section. And when I used to come to the city, I would often get up, you know, from up the 16th Street Station and used to have the Albion, which is a bar, the Firehouse, which was a music dancing club. You had Picaros, which I think may still be there. You know, it was a really lively area. Esta Noche, which was a fun club. Um, but just a few blocks away, you know, it was hustlers and dealers. And um, I know people, you know, who like it's a, it's a vector, a spiritual and a geographical and, you know, all sorts of things on so many plate. You know, people will say I used to be I used to hang out at 16th and Mission or if someone goes back to 16th and Mission, you kind of you worry about them maybe. And so I thought it was, you know, Ron would be a person, you know, who would be on that bus. And he's a, on that bus differently at different times, right? There's a time when he is, you know, he people find him repulsive. He's kicked off. He's the kind of person that you don't want on the bus. And he wouldn't look at people. But by the end of the story, he's he's one of the one of the passengers who will look at someone else on the bus. One of my sons, I shouldn't, you can cut this out if you want, but re completely off, you know, re not even having to do with this story. I found out he had the Muni logo tattooed on his body. <laughs> and like if you raise kids in the city, hopping Muni buses is a rite of passage. It's what they do as teenagers. That's you ride the Muni buses and you, you know, we had Muni paraphernalia all over the house. We love this story as so much as San Francisco literature. And for me and for the actors in the reading, in the podcast that are old enough to remember the mission in the late 80s and the early 90s, it was a really significant place for us as well. And so the actors were really inspired by the recognizable description in your story about the Mission District and for me also the Tenderloin. And a lot of us spent a lot of time performing in the Mission in that very area as actors in the early 90s. Intersection for the Arts, Campo Santo, the Eureka Theater, Theater Rhino, Victoria. I was just counting them off. Project Artaud and Cap Street Project. It was a really significant location for for us, um, you know, in terms of the cafes, the bars, the restaurants, and and the streets. Right. And venues for music. We had a dance studio on 16th and Cap. And boy, I used to walk to dance classes there. And, and 24th and yeah. Mission. And uh, 20, yep. And you had a lot of places on Valencia that were venues for all sorts of things. It was an exciting know. artistic center. <laughs> Um, Anita, in an earlier conversation that we had, uh, you talked about this idea of resilience and what you called the miracle of possibility. Um, and these are concepts that you're drawn to. I'm wondering if you can explain how those ideas are working in this story and with these characters specifically. Um, all of the characters to me are miracles. I mean, Ron, obviously, Gypsy turns back into Ron. You know, he finds that person again. But even people like Skinhead Ed, who's kind of like 
you know, he's still sort of tweaking and he's making fun of the program or whatever. He's not on the street, you know, and he's on a cot and he's he's among other people and he can crack jokes. And Pelican Pete, you know, he's like a secondary character and he's annoying and he's always saying, I doubt I'm the worst of the worst or whatever. And uh, people tolerate him. They maybe humor him. But, you know, here's a guy who spent a lifetime in prison and here he's belong he belongs and is accepted into and supported by this community. So, you know, that is a miracle, you know, and the fact that somebody sent him a photograph of a granddaughter, I would infer that he, you know, had somehow repaired familial relations to the point, you know, the fact that somebody who spent a whole lifetime in prison is able to show off pictures of his granddaughter and is part of that community is sort of beautiful. But then Ron and Melvin, I mean, I, you know, it's important. I think I was afraid, you know, that people would read about Melvin, what he did or what he does, who knows, to women and, you know, peg him as a misogynist or, you know, a macho idiot or whatever. But, you know, Melvin does not make excuses for himself. He's ashamed of what he's done and he's trying to do better. And he stands up in front of people and admits what he's done. And then he tries to help other people. And even in that scene, you know, the scene where he goes back to his house and he catches, you know, he sees his ex-boss, the guy who fired him, leaving what, what Melvin still considers his house, you know, where his ex-wife is. You know, in another lifetime, Melvin would have, like, tried to kill the guy, but he doesn't, you know? And the worst that he can do is to go, you know, just go off the wagon and throw back a few. And then, you know, the miracle of Ron, you know, bugging him. Like, he's he has a higher purpose in that moment, you know? And so when people you know, learn like selflessness and he's not doing it to get anything really. He's doing it because that's what his, his job, you know, take, you know, looking out for Ron at that point is more important than drowning his own pain. And so Melvin is a miracle. Doesn't mean, you know, it's going to last or who knows what happens to Melvin. And then Ron too, you know, I think for, for what it's worth, the fact that Ron bought a gift and wrapped a gift is something like he would never have known to do in his life, you know? So I don't know. I think they're all miracles. I think all of us, I mean, that's what I think about everyone I want. Oh, I, I, it's easy. You know, I walk towards what's that's, you know, there's that hip vegan Latino restaurant, Gracias Madre, which is at like 16th. And to get there, you literally walk over a row of people shooting up. It's a really disturbing thing. And I just want to remember, but you know, it's not just the people on the street. It's every, you know, I would have the same in every single one of us, you know, there's a Ron who may or may not go in one direction, you know, somehow, I mean, in some, we all carry some kind of trauma that we're trying to work against and be better, you know, better people. So those, that's the miracle that they just keep on keeping. And I love the way that's revealed in, in smaller ways in the stories, like in some of the simpler acts of just, hey, we're, we're about to set up the chairs now. This is what we do. We set up the chairs. Um, I find those smaller moments memorable for me. Um, 
I have to ask this, Anita, even if you don't want to answer it, but do you yourself know what Ron chooses to do at the end of this story? Uh, nope, I don't know. But that's the thing. We don't know. We don't, you know. I think I just want to say that for that moment that he's on the bus before he does anything, he's got to be okay in that moment. And then, you know, no, I don't know. I think I heard, I think Stephanie was telling me before saying, does he go? Does he, what's he do? <laughs> well, actually, we decided he could go either way. He doesn't know. He's what, I mean. That he himself doesn't know is interesting. Or, you know, in yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, we want him to go to the meeting, but I have a spontaneous question. We've we've discovered that this story is a Christmas story, and that's really significant for these people who don't necessarily have a lot of family connections, except for the people that they find in in the groups, and um, what it's like at Christmas time for people who are lonely or who are outcasts um, and what it is to find people to care about at Christmas time. I just think that's very interesting part of the story, very moving part of the story. You teach writing at San Francisco State and I was wondering how you could talk a bit about how you think your teaching influences your writing. Way more so, I would say that my writing influences my teaching because I'm supposed to be teaching sort of composition. And when I first started teaching composition, I thought that there was a real disconnect, like a solid line, you know, that like here's creative writing and here's composition. And um, I took a, a novel or some kind of one course, just, you know, I, I didn't even need to. I was just wanted the extra, like, you know, zing of a writing course. And the fellow, he was a novelist, said that the first line in a novel ought to give you a direction, like where you're going. You know, you should know something from the first line. And I think about composition the same way, like don't beat around the bush, you know, don't fill it up with like a lot of, I don't know, generalities or filler, just be super, super honest. And I implore my students, I say like, don't write something that you think I want. Don't try to impress anyone. Just be real and find something that matters to you. So I see a real, those themes go together a lot. And I don't know, maybe I'm teaching them something that's going to not help them in their other courses, but I, um, I always say there's a Charles Mingus quote and it's um, every semester I, I put it on my syllabus or on something else on the board if we're there. And Mingus said, making the simple complicated is commonplace. Making the complicated simple, awesomely simple, that's creativity. And I try to impress upon them that no matter what genre they're writing in, like that's super important. Anyone can make the simple sound complicated, but to make the complicated simple is really important and beautiful. And the other thing that we do, um, I love Carl Rogers has an essay he wrote years ago called Communication, Its Breakdown and Facilitation. And um, Rogers rests his whole theory that the on um, communication, it's important that we not judge another person's perspective, that we listen without judgment. And he says in this essay, even if the other person hates you, 
So I think so many times students are taught, we're going to like, we're going to best you in an argument. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, create this argument and I'm going to show that I'm right. And I'm like, again, I might be doing them a terrible disservice, but I always say, um, I want you to like be compassionate, you know, listen to the other side and show that in your writing. And I think a lot of good, you know, convincing writers do that. They write, they address like an opposing view in such a way that they, you believe they really understand you and that you're going to reach more people that way. So in that way, my writing influences my teaching. And I love when people, when students take risks and write something, you know, that's, they think it's like absolutely not, you know, appropriate for school. And, but it's real, you know, and that's what as writers we do, you know, you know what that's like as writers, both of you write, you know, that you go to, you find the story that's, that you really need to tell, that you really want to say. And so even if you're writing something for a poli-sci class or I don't know, you know, try to find the thing that really matters to you within that subject. Uh, well, I think you absolutely make the complicated simple in the 14 mission and you do it compassionately and non-judgmentally and empathetically. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for this great conversation. And Stephanie, I didn't say what a wonderful job you did. It was amazing. It was just, it was a whole new, it's as if you created a new story with your direction and your production. It was, it was so wonderful. It was the, the, an honor of a lifetime. Don't tell my kids. I said it really was one of the highlights of my life. So, and Vanessa, thank you for all your work and your help. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Anita, for the beautiful story. Thanks again for listening to Word for Wordcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please support the many artists employed by ZSpace and Word for Word by making a donation at zspace.org, where you can also sign up for our email list to get the latest about the podcast and other Word for Word and ZSpace events and productions. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in in the new year for our next offering, Greg Saris's story of family and identity, Citizen, which will post in two parts on January 14th and 21st. As always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, stay safe and take care of each other. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs>